I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. This episode of What's Next features two conversations that offer different viewpoints on the many layered issues of opioid abuse and addiction. In the second half, we'll have a discussion with Dean Seneca of Seneca Scientific. But first, you'll hear a piece recorded earlier between WBFO's Alex Simone and Erie County District Attorney John Flynn. So like you said, you've been at this for seven years now. So I guess my first thought is, can you take me into a little bit of uh, sort of the change in your perspective with how you approach a lot of these drug overdose mm-hmm. cases yeah. and, and you know taking on the drug issue, which is really so prevalent. Sure. My uh, perspective has definitely changed over the course of the past seven years. Like we talked about a little bit off air, you know, I, I ran in 2016 and I was elected. I got reelected in 2020. And so I'm now in my third year, my second term. So I've, I've been doing it now for almost seven years. When I ran for office in 2016, you know, that was pretty much the height of the opioid crisis in this country, not, not only in Erie County in New York State, but actually the, the country. Because the reality is, Alex, is that the, the, the numbers we were seeing in Erie County and the increase in number of overdose deaths from 2015 to 2016 mirrored that across the country. And so we had a serious problem. And when I took over, my immediate recognition was the fact that there were two different players that I was dealing with. The first set of people were the individuals who were selling the opioids, the heroin, the fentanyl. They they were literally, by selling this stuff, causing the deaths of, you know, hundreds of people in this community. And then you had the users. They were the player number two. And the users, by and large, you know, were not criminals. They were people who came from various walks of life who got addicted to opioids for a number of reasons. A lot of them initially legal reasons. They had a surgery and got hooked on pain meds. They got into a car accident and got just hurt and, you know, started off with Advil and then ramped it up as they went along. And so their addiction And the power of the fentanyl and the power of the heroin on the individual body is so strong that they became addicted and they became users. And then they invariably at some point got caught up in the criminal justice system. So over the course of the past seven years, I've had to navigate on how to deal with both players here, how to deal with the sellers and how to deal with the users. And obviously, I've learned along the way the past seven years, you know, what works, what doesn't work. A lot of things have happened in the past seven years, COVID being the main thing that has kind of 
disrupted the, the, the system, which we can talk about later if you want. But, you know, navigating the different players involved has been my biggest challenge over the course of the past seven years. And everyone talks about cracking down on drug issues, right? So how do you sort of go about that specific? And, and maybe <clears throat> what about that situation is unique to Buffalo, right? What are some of those things that are kind of Buffalo specific? Well, what's unique to Buffalo is the fact that Buffalo created the very first opioid court in the country. I know a lot of people have heard about drug courts and know about drug courts. What your listeners need really need to know is that Buffalo, New York, is the leader in diversion courts all across the country. We, we were one of the very first drug courts to get established back in the 1990s. I'll give credit where credit's due. And, you know, Miami, Florida actually started the very first drug court in the early to mid-90s. But Buffalo was right behind them. Former Judge Robert Russell, a Buffalo City Court judge, was a leader in this nationwide, not only here in Buffalo, but nationwide. And we, we created one of the first drug courts. We created one of the first mental health courts in the country. We did create the first veterans court in the country a number of years ago. And I'm proud to say, when I became DA in 2017, we established the very first opioid court in the country. Now, since 2017, a number of jurisdictions, not only in New York State, but across the country, have modeled and created opioid courts based upon what we did here in Buffalo. So the creation of the opioid court is the most important thing that we did, in my opinion, here in Buffalo, because we developed the notion that we're not going to crack down on the user, that player number two that I talked about before, that we're going to try to help them if they deserve the help and if they want the help. So we're going to help them but with player number one, the seller, we're going to crack down on them. We're going to focus our, our law enforcement penalty efforts on them, player number one, but at the same time, help player number two. So when people talk about cracking down on drugs, I, I believe in that, but you got to crack down on the appropriate people, which is what we've done here in Buffalo. And could you maybe take us inside that process for prosecuting a drug trafficking case, right? What are some of those unique things that maybe you look for? What are some of those uh, things that you're, you're sort of trying to highlight? Sure. So obviously, I'm going to give the credit to my partners in law enforcement. We have a narcotics division in the Buffalo Police Department that is exceptional. We have a sheriff's department narcotics bureau led by uh, DJ Granville, who is one of the finest law enforcement officers that I've ever seen in the country, not only here in Buffalo, but in the country. And his team in partnership with the Buffalo Police Department, in partnership with the FBI, the DEA, Homeland Security, all of us work together in a task force to not only find the dealers, but to bring them to prosecution. And so 
We're obviously on the streets working with informants. We are following every lead. We are working with our international partners, especially we're on a border here in Canada. So we're working with our international partners to stop the flow of drugs coming across the Canadian border, which is becoming more and more of a problem. Everyone talks about Mexico and the open borders in Mexico, but we live on a border here and we pretty much have open borders on the Canadian side. Uh, And so we are seeing over the course of the past two or three years, more and more drugs coming in from Canada here in the Buffalo than we've seen before. And so, you know, working with our international partners and our Homeland Security and the FBI and our local law enforcement, we are vigilantly, actively on the streets each and every day, um, finding the sellers and dealers of, of this poison. And I think that actually that part about Canada brings an interesting point because I've wondered quite a bit the ease of access of just going across yeah. Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. It's just hundreds of miles of open space. I mean, e- either way, if people wanted to go either from a low population area on the New York side up to Canada, I feel like it would be very easy to go either way and go from one low population area to another sparsely populated area without anyone knowing about it. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we here in Buffalo, obviously, we, we, we do have a water that separates us. You know, we, we have the Peace Bridge, we have the Rainbow Bridge, we have the Lewiston Bridge, but you have a, a natural boundary there, okay? When you go upstate into the Adirondacks, you have literally miles and miles of forest on the Canadian border where there is no water. There's no Niagara Falls separating you, okay? There, there's literally trees, and that's it. And so it is extremely challenging for law enforcement officials all across New York State to monitor that, and, and they do a great job. You know, we, we do our best to ensure that we try to find as many uh, drug traffickers coming across the border as possible. And as far as drug court numbers again, right, I've heard that those numbers have been decreasing in like recent years. Could you maybe go a little bit into what some of the contributors might be on that front? Sure. That's one of the that's one of the saddest things that I've seen in my seven years as, as DA, because not only are our opioid court numbers way down from when they when we got started in 2018, 2019, but all diversion courts are down. Obviously, like I alluded to before, COVID was a major interrupter. The courts were closed for a number of months. We only had the necessary courts open for initial arraignments and just kind of an initial intake into the system. Then we delayed things for a number of months. I, I think we're caught back up now, but it took us a little while to get caught back up. So that interrupter was first and foremost. Then at the same time we had COVID in 2020, the summer of 2020 was the epicenter of COVID. We had the social unrest in this country and we had the George Floyd incident. And what came out of the George Floyd incident was this whole defund the police movement and the antagonism toward 
law enforcement. And again, with what happened in, in, in Minneapolis was atrocious and any antagonism toward those officers was deserved, obviously, but it spilled over into a kind of a defund the police, lack of respect for law enforcement in general, which has, to a certain extent, demoralized those in law enforcement. And it's also spilled over now into my world, into prosecutors, where we are seeing less and less people apply to become police officers across the country. We are seeing more and more resignations. I'm seeing less and less resumes come across my desk now. And so it hasn't gone away in the past three years. So it's gotten better, obviously, but it's not gone yet. And so there's a demoralization of law enforcement that hasn't helped the problem. In New York State, on top of all that, we had bail reform. And what happened with bail reform is that Anyone now who has been charged with a low-level offense is out on bail, and there is no bail, so they're, they're out automatically, all right? And when we had the diversion courts up running full and we had the opioid court at, at its full capacity, there was always the threat of jail. There was always the hammer hanging over your head where if you did not comply with the, the terms of your diversion court, then there's a possibility the judge could set bail on you, all right? Now, it wasn't automatic, but it was a possibility, all right? So sometimes in life, you got to have a hammer hanging over someone's head. You don't got to use the hammer, but the threat of the hammer helps. And the, the hammer's gone now. And so that to me, is quite frankly the number one reason why the numbers are down. Is it one of those where you, because, you know, describing the hammer, that sounds to me like a form of negative reinforcement, right? I I would say, I guess, not being a psychology professional. You're right. right. (laughs) It's definitely negative. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Is there maybe a different mindset to make that a positive reinforcement thing where people want to be in drug court, that kind of thing? We we try. That's what we try to do. And quite frankly, Alex, we've been forced to do that now because of bail reform. We've been forced to go the 100% positive route because the the negative aspect has been that toolbox is no longer in our hands. That tool is out of the toolbox. And so we we, we try and, and we're doing it. But I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. If you're a good defense attorney, your job is to not only help your client, but your main job is to deal with the criminal charge at hand. Okay, I mean, that 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 that's your main focus. Obviously, as human beings, you want to help people out and defense lawyers do. So I, I don't say this by throwing a callous blanket over the fence lawyer because they're good people and they want to help people out. But that's not their main job. Their, their main job is not being a social worker. Their main job is to deal with the criminal matter at hand. And they know that due to the bail laws and the new discovery laws too, where we got to like move cases quicker now, okay, all right, that they're going to be able to resolve their client's case with probation 
or a dismissal or an ACD or a non-criminal charge quicker than they were pre-bail reform, pre-discovery. And they're doing that. There's no incentive for their client now to go through drug court or to go through opioid court because they know they're going to get a reduced plea or they're going to be able to get off maybe scot-free because we in a DA's office can't handle all these cases due to the new discovery laws. So it was just a perfect storm. It was COVID. It was the bail laws, the discovery laws, the social unrest. Everything happened all at once. And we're dealing with a whole different world now. And I feel like one other thing that is also very prevalent right now as far as that goes, maybe the additions of things like fentanyl and, well, I guess it's been a while now that fentanyl has been, but you know, now even things like Trank. And, and how does that sort of change the equation, change the level of concern? It, it raises it, my concern level to the nth degree. <laughs> um, so going back to what I talked about a little bit before, we, we kind of saw the numbers spike and reach and plateau in 2016. Then the good news was they started going down 2017, 2018, 2019. And then we had COVID. And COVID obviously disrupted everyone's lives. It, it threw society into turmoil. And for a number of reasons, due to unrest, disruption in people's lives, the numbers now started going back up. And they went up in 20, up in 21, and up again in 22. So they've gone up close to the levels we were at in 2016. And what's changed now, though, is the demographics have changed to a certain aspect of it. In the height of the opioid crisis in 14, 15, and 16, it was mainly a rural and suburban problem. Obviously, it touched the inner cities, but it was mainly a rural and suburban problem. The epicenter of the opioid crisis in the country was in Appalachia, in Ohio, or in Kentucky, and then it, it, it spread from there, but it really hit the, the, the rural populations hard. What we're seeing now with the increases in 2020, 21, 22, it's still a rural and suburban problem, but we're seeing more and more of it in the inner city now. And that's because of the introduction of mixing fentanyl with cocaine, where individuals now think they're just doing cocaine, which, you know, they have been for the past 40, 50 years. And, you know, people do recreational cocaine and haven't had any problems at all their, their whole life. Okay. And, you know, it's not good for you, obviously, but, you know, they haven't any problems. And now, unbeknownst to them, it's mixed with fentanyl and now they're overdosing. And so that has become a huge problem, not only here in Erie County, but across the country. And along those lines, as you mentioned with overdose numbers being up recently, I think up to th overdose deaths were up to 300 or just over 300 last year was what I yeah. saw. And, and to tie that back into the I guess the drug court side, does that contribute at all to the involvement in drug court and that kind of thing? Because I feel like, you know, 300, that's 300 potential people who could be participating yeah. in drug court and that yeah. kind of thing. And now they're, I mean, obviously yeah. 300 lives. Yeah, well. no, no doubt about it. Now, 
again, though, it's important to remember, though, that not all 300 of those people got caught up in a criminal justice system. You know, so probably the overwhelming majority are, are individuals who were not in the criminal justice system. But some of them probably were. I don't have exact numbers on that. But some of them at one point in their lives in the past, say, three or four years, were involved in the criminal justice system. And what we learned was that in 2018, 2019, when we got opioid court up and running, we were literally saving lives. We had a number of individuals who were in our normal drug court. And again, the difference is, is that normal drug court kicks in after adjudication. A person's either found guilty or pled guilty. And as part of the sentencing, they go into drug court. Opioid court's different. Opioid court, we get them in right away after arraignment and they get treatment right away. So we don't wait until they've been adjudicated, pled guilty. It's not a sentencing court. It's an immediate court for opioid court. And we had, before we created opioid court, we had numerous people in our normal drug court die of overdose. When we started the opioid court for like the first six months to a year, the people in opioid court, we didn't have one death, none. And we had our first one almost a year into it. Uh, so we were literally saving lives in opioid court. And, and that, you know, going back to my earlier statement, that's what upsets me the most is that the numbers in our, not just opioid court, but all our diversion courts where we're helping people have gone down dramatically. And we're not only not helping people, but we're losing people as well. Well, how do you change those tactics? Yeah, maybe you know, it's, I, it's I, tough. I mean, it, it, it it's difficult under the current parameters that we're in right now. I mean, it, it, it it's just we have to do a better job of convincing people that you know you may be able to get rid of your case in a couple months, but if you get into opioid court and you get help, then we're potentially going to save your life for the rest of your life. And so we just got to do a better job of convincing people of that because unfortunately, Alex, the way the bail laws are, are set up right now, again, I know it's a little harsh, but sometimes in life you need tough love. And sometimes in life you need a hammer hanging over someone's head in order to get them to do something that's good for them. And unfortunately, the way the system is right now, we don't have that hammer. Well, and I think it kind of, one of the things I was thinking of too is not just even the lack of the need for more law enforcement officers, but also the number of things like peer support specialists, oh, yeah. drug counselors, yes. that kind of thing. Because everybody I talk to who is in that field says that they can't find enough people to yeah. forget about the new positions that they need people for. They can't find people to fill the existing positions. And so uh, how much of a role do you think that plays? And I guess my B side of that question would be, wh what's your sort of interaction with those 
professionals look like as well. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a great point, a great question. We, we work with them hand in hand, obviously. So the opioid court, the, the way it's set up is that we have those professional services literally in our opiate court. So they are the monitors, they are the administrators of the actual treatment of the opiate court. So we in law enforcement deal with them every day. And you're right. There are the numbers of people that are needed in that field are tremendous. And so it's a holistic approach to this where we need more treatment professionals. We need more people to agree to go and get treatment. It's an all-hands-on-deck approach. I mean, whatever we need to do as a society to, to encourage more young people to go in that field, the, the better it is for all of us. You mentioned as well your time serving on sort of the state level as a DA and then also on the national, right, within these other groups and interacting with other DAs. Uh, So could you maybe go into a little how that might change the perspective for you as well and and maybe some things that you picked up along the way interacting with uh, your peers? Yeah, sure. So I I had the honor last year to serve as the president of the National District Attorneys Association. The the National uh, DA Association is our nationwide entity where all the DAs from across the country are members and, and, and join and, and participate in various training seminars and uh, activities that we have all across the country. And not only did I get a chance to sell Buffalo, which that, that, that was my main goal. My main goal was to sell Buffalo on what we did here in our community by establishing the opioid court, by establishing the, one of the first ones drug court in the 90s, all right? There's this notion out there that all prosecutors want to do is throw people in jail. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. We, as prosecutors, give people second, third, sometimes fourth chances every day. For every one person I throw in jail, hundreds I give help to. And hundreds I give a second, third, fourth chance to. So, you know, this notion that all we want to do is throw people in jail is just not true. I mean, we as prosecutors, we were instrumental in the creation of diversion courts across the country. My DA's office was instrumental in creating the first opioid court here in Buffalo in 2017. And I, I, I tell people all the time that my least busiest prosecutor... I got 105 lawyers who work in my office. My least busiest one will exonerate more people in one month than any defense lawyer will in her lifetime. That's a fact. Um, And so I tried to, in my year as the DA nationwide president, instill that in DAs across the country, instill that sense of getting people help giving people a second chance. Here's what we're doing in Buffalo. And I was successful in that. Now, along the way, I picked up many different things that other DA's offices do. There's a great gun diversion court that's going on in the Bronx right now. So I'm trying to incorporate those things that I learned there and bring the Buffalo now. It, it was a tremendous honor for me to be president of the National DA Association. And I learned so much, but more importantly, I was able to teach others and spread what we're doing great here in Buffalo nationwide. 
And then when I gave that up in July, this past July of 2023, I immediately took over then as president of my state DA association. In New York State, we have 62 counties. So all 62 district attorneys are members of our statewide association. Every state has that across the country. I am now president of that statewide association. So again, a tremendous honor. And what I'm doing statewide is selling Buffalo, (laughs) telling people how great we are here in Buffalo, but along the way, picking up other things as well, like I'm doing with the Bronx uh, DA's Gun Corps Initiative. And to tie it back into the Buffalo specific side, and, and one of the things that I've heard recently was that it takes, I think, eight years, right, of try before someone who is a, a drug user or has substance use disorder, eight years before they're finally able to uh, <clears throat> sort of effectively get through treatment and and get to that recovery process and that kind of thing. So when you hear that, and like you said before, multiple times, you see the decreasing drug court numbers. Like, is it tough not to get into maybe a state of, for lack of a better term, like doom and gloom? No, because even though we can't wait eight years, obviously, I, I, I can't keep a case open eight years. We can start the process. We can lay the foundation in year one and have someone get help in year one. And if that foundation is strong enough, even after the case is over, after they put the criminal proceedings in the rearview mirror, if they have a strong foundation, they can now last seven more years and they can go through the process and hopefully be free and clear whenever it may be, whether it's year six or year eight or sometimes year 10. Everyone's different, obviously, but we can create a good start and a foundation, and that's the best we can do. That was WBFO's Alex Simone in a conversation recorded earlier with Erie County District Attorney John Flynn. Coming up, Dean Seneca of Seneca Scientific. This is What's Next on WBFO. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Welcome to What's Next. Our guest this morning, Dean Seneca. Dean is, well, he's got a lot of experience that we're going to get into here. His company is Seneca Scientific Solutions. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. One of the reasons I know that we wanted to get you in here is your work that you're doing in understanding the addiction issue, crisis that's Mm -hmm. impacting. Obviously, it's widespread in society, but in your case, you're taking a look at how it's impacting native populations. Let's maybe just start with a general question. What don't we understand about how it's impacting native populations? Well, the big misunderstanding is that these addictions that we're seeing is really a reflection or a response to a term that is now being more accepted in the public health medical field, intergenerational trauma. Native people have experienced a huge amount of trauma since we could say the last 300 years. Right. And through contact, through treaty making, 
through removal policy, through reservation policies, through the boarding schools where our people, our children, were taken from their parents and put into these militarized concentration camps. Right. For Native people, this is where a lot of ethnic cleansing actually happened. And this is where people were made to be ashamed of themselves. And this is where really a lot of colonialism got its deep claws on our Native populations. And in the words of General Richard Pratt, to kill the Indian and save the man. Mm. Right. So through this, that's another era where there's a, a ton of trauma inflicted on Native people. And we can go to 1934 Reorganization Act, where the government kind of said, hey, man, we really have messed up Indian country. And man, it, problems are so bad, we don't even know what to do about it. Right before that was the Dawes Act, in which tribal people really lost three quarters of our land base. And then it, you could go to relocation and the termination policies, literally, which went all the way up to 1968. So you think about it, in our lifetime, it was the policy of the U.S. government to terminate Indians. You're no longer Indian. You know, we're going to move you all to the urban centers, and we want you to be part of this great melting pot called the United States. And, you know, a, a reminder to that point, Rome was an empire too. Hmm. So all of these different traumas that have impacted Native people have put us into a situation where we're very strong. We're very resilient people. And we've survived all of this, but we've never healed from it. And because we've never healed from it, how do we act out? Well, we act out through coping. And coping is, you know, addictions, right? And, you know, in the past it was alcohol. You know, there's no big secret that uh, the stigma around natives and alcohol and that we were not exposed to it, you know, uh, uh, um, centuries like the Europeans have, I always thought that was a bunch of crap. And there's no secret now that there is a big alcohol problem in Indian country. And, you know, and that's how we're acting out. But here's the thing. Alcohol is a slow death, right. usually, right? Takes a very, very long time. But now people are acting out with much harder kinds of drugs, more severe death-killing kind of things that are not even experimental, Right. And that's how it's impacting us. So because of all of these traumas, because we really haven't healed and how do we cope? We cope through these really bad, nasty substances that keep us addicted and keep us uh, numb because we really haven't confronted a lot of these different traumas. But I'm working to really try to address that where we can have conversations, where we can bring our community together to help us heal. Interesting, you said bringing the community together. Mm-hmm. At this point, and again, it's a generality, and, I, and you're a scientist, so I've already learned from uh, talking to you a little bit that when you, generalities can be a little tricky because it takes a little definition mm-hmm. and a little explanation. But when it comes to the community, does there need to first be an acceptance that there is a, a problem, perhaps more acute problem for Native populations? We're talking about addiction and opioids that... There's got to be an acceptance and understanding that this is a problem for all of these reasons. You mentioned intergenerational trauma. Is, is that a part of the issue? Well, I would say that there is a pretty uniform acceptance that we do have 
um, these problems in our communities. Okay. You know, we may have some uh, uh, political leaders who would uh, who would um, may not admit to all the severity of these problems in our community, but uh, I think it's pretty universal that uh, you know um, we have substance use disorders in our in our um, in our communities, and everybody is impacted. Right. right. You know, everybody's impacted. Um, I come from a family who uh, used alcohol way too much. Right. And I think many of our um, families uh, suffer from this kind of trauma. And we need to understand that trauma reverberates in a community. Right. Uh, let's go back to this. This whole sure. concept of intergenerational trauma is really brand new when it when it comes to health research. It really only started after World War II and the Holocaust survivors, and realizing that those folks that were in concentration camps had a lot of PTSD after surviving these camps, you know, and they, uh, um, um, you know, acted out because of their time in that camp. And then we found out that um, kids from those folks acted out because they were being brought up by folks that were in concentration, right? So the kids were impacted. And then we're finding out other survivors were impacted. So this whole concept regarding intergenerational trauma in the scientific world is is fairly new, mm. you know. Um, and now what we've done is, okay, well, let's place this whole concept on these traumas and how it reverberates into a bigger scale. And when you look at the American Indian population and everything that we've had to address uh, in, the, um, in the plight of westernization, uh, you know, we've had hundreds and hundreds of years of a lot of trauma, right? Contact. Uh, these treaties, they were never fair. No. You know, um, the, the, the white people weren't going to keep their, their bargain. You know, they weren't true to their word. You know, that's a, a huge trauma. Removal policy, right? Well, we removed Native people from their homelands, and what did that do? Well, what that really did is it changed everything about them. They changed their cosmology, Right, but the bigger impact is when they were when people were removed, they ended up having to change your diet, right? Okay. When you change your diet, and what happened is when people were removed and put on reservations, well, they couldn't really hunt and fish and farm like they once did in their homeland, and then they became dependent on United States commodities, right? And United States commodities were foods that were rich in flour, rich in sugar rich in salt, where none of these foods were, were all foreign to Native people, right? Because everything we did was boiled and baked, right? There was no grease. There was no lard. <laughs> there wasn't all of this other stuff, you know, that was, you know, added to our diet. So removal policy wasn't just removing us from land that white people wanted. It really changed our whole health structure because it really changed our diet, right? And then if you look at boarding schools, boarding schools really just taught us how to be white, mm-hmm. you know, but really didn't, you know, these schools didn't teach the Indians to be doctors and lawyers. You know, these schools taught the Indians how to be servants and slaves. Laborers. Laborers, right? You know, 
And if you go back to some of the old, um, you know, uh, the Quakers wrote all the notes and stuff, and you go back to the Thomas Indian School at Seneca Nation in Cattaraugus, you know, the school administrators were, were like very concerned that school wasn't being taught to the kids, right? They were concerned that, you know, what was going on there is that it was literally a labor force, right. you know, where, you know, kids work, work seven days a week. Yes, yes. Half, ten, half day maybe in class and the rest of the day out on the farm. It, exactly. Yeah. If that, yeah. you know, and you can go back to that. Um, and then if you even go um, to the Dawes Act in which, you know, can you imagine being a native population and having all this vast land? And then you're all of a sudden thrown onto a reservation, which for a traditional native person is like being thrown in jail. Right. You know, we can't subsist like this. We were very migratory people, right? Um, and then if you go all the way up to the termination policies of the 1960s, right? You know, I mean, it again, it was you know, um, you know, just to uh, terminate tribal nations, and, and a big part of that um, was Hollywood's. Uh, rendition rendition of Native people in John Wayne movies. Right. This is where most people in the country actually got their cultural competency regarding Natives, was from John Wayne movies. And, you know, Marlon Brando uh, refused to accept his Academy Award for The Godfather because he wanted to make a statement of how bad Native people were being portrayed, Right. And, um, you know, in studies regarding um, intergenerational trauma, we look at boarding schools to this point. Um, researchers at the University of Washington, Dr. Katrina Walters, uh, made a few very open statements. Actually, Dr. Walters is now at NIH leading their um, uh, tribal health research office, an office actually I held for uh, two weeks, but we can get into, <laughs> we can we can get into that the good trouble part of that right. my career. Um, but um, you know, she one of the statements she said she said eight out of every ten kids were molested in those boarding schools. Ooh. You know, think about that eight out of every ten kids, right? And um, trauma on top of trauma, trauma on top of trauma, right? So just awful things. And, um, you know, um, and so the other big thing that she attested to getting to the John Wayne movies and our termination policies is that when they would survey uh, kids, uh, Indian kids, and they wanted them to be cow- play cowboys and Indians. And uh, none of the Indians wanted to be the Indians hmm. because they knew from the movies that the Indians always died off. Right. It's just not a good portrayal of Native people that kind of adds to this negativity, adds to this depression, adds to this anxiety, adds to not wanting to be who you are, right? Which also um, acts out in our health disparities, right? We have an increase of suicide that increases, you know, we have an increase of addictions, you know, we have things where people are displaced and can't be part or don't feel part of you know, where they fit within their community, you know, all of these, um, um, all of these social ills are really um, rooted um, in this very convoluted, uh, destructive uh, history 
that we have with the United States. You mentioned how you'd like to have conversations, getting back to that, conversations that try to address this, improve it. What do you see inside those conversations? Take me into that. I mean, obviously, you don't know what's going to happen in a conversation until we start having it, but how do you see them working mm-hmm. and, what, uh, you know, and what are the things that need to be addressed? Okay. Well, I'm going to put in a plug for a project that I'm working on right now. Uh, I am in, working in partnership with uh, the University of Rochester's uh, Medical Center. Right. And we developed a program, almost like a whole litany of, um, of discussions and the program is called in Indigenous Community Conversations, right? And um, basically what we did is we went to our community and it, we interviewed people who have overcome their addictions and on a road to recovery, right? And, um, you know, so through this whole thing, through this whole program on Indigenous Community Conversations with uh, the University of Rochester, um, uh, basically, um, what we're trying to do is um, is to show uh, the community. Um, uh, it, it, this is not rocket science. Let me back up for a second. Sure. Basically, basically, it's this: when someone who has an addiction, and we're trying to address the stigma around addictions, right? Because there's a huge amount of different kinds of stigma in the native community, right? Different, different than stigma than, that than, than in any other ones. community, okay. and it's more severe. All right, right. And basically, what we're doing through this project is when we videotape somebody who has overcome their addiction and is on the road to recovery. Um, this is not rocket science. When an addict sees someone like that who is like them on video, they're more likely to go seek help. Because they, they feel that if this person can do it, so can I, right? But it's important to see a person who looks, looks like, like them, them reflects them. Okay. Yep. From the community, acts like them, has a story similar to, them, to theirs. When people see that and see that they have been able to overcome that addiction, overcome that substance use disorder, and... Um, that person is more likely to go seek help so that they can do the same thing. And, and that's, and that's basically the root of it, you know, and in the conversations we address stigma, you know, we address what is stigmatizing people from getting help? Well, it's a, you know, in some of the conversations, things have come up that, um, well, it's that negativity like all right you know you're not partying anymore and we still want to party so don't bring don't preach your good word to us Mm. kind of thing right um the other is that or you might not get invited to parties all the time because you're not using and we all are right um or you know you might um you know the conversations can go into um, why isn't tribal leadership taking a more active role in addressing the problems around substance use disorder in our community, right? Uh, the conversation can move to um, the simple things, right? You know, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, ACE, right? 
adverse childhood effects, right? And this is something I'm actually pr very proud of that I was in, involved in in the very beginning while I was at CDC. And basically what we've done is we developed an instrument in which we ask you 10 questions. And if you answer yes to any of those 10 questions, you know, you're, you're very likely to have trauma or act out in trauma using substances or, you know, things that are dysfunctional later on in life. Okay. Right? And if, you, and if you talk with many um, people who are addicts, you know, and they kind of go back to, what was it that made me do this? And it could be a simple thing that my parents weren't there for my basketball games. Or, you know, my father didn't do this. Or my mother didn't do that. Or I felt lonely here. I wasn't supported here. And... You know, this, that trauma or that incident really, really impacts them where they need to act out. And that's usually by numbing themselves, right? And an ACE, if you took that ACE test, I remember the first time I actually took it. I think I answered like eight out of ten questions, yes. Oh, my. You know, like, you know, and I'm going, wow. You know, this is, this is really, really uh, alarming, right? You know, and I would attest that. Many people in our native community would probably answer the same. And the whole premise is, is this. When you have a child, and traditionally we were very good at this, traditionally. It was through colonialism that we've got away from this. That child sh shouldn't see any trauma or any adverse behavior until they're like 12 years old. None. You know, and so how many of our children at a very young age have seen domestic violence? How many children at a very young age have seen people using? How many children have been in uh, physical altercations with their siblings and parents at a very young age? Like none of that should have happened. Right. Right. Because if any of that happens, those are the folks that are going to be our addicts in the future. Right. It's just the way... It's just the way it is, and this is that cycle of things. And, uh, you know, part of my work is to stop the cycle. You know, we, we want to stop the cycle. And I want to make it known that, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not innocent to any of this, right? I'm not coming in preaching the good word. You know, I've had my challenges with alcohol, um, I've seen a lot of stuff in, in the community. I've had experiences and things that I should, and been in places I should not have been in at a very young age. You know, I am, you know, I am, and I tell a lot of my colleagues and friends and relatives, you know, I am just like you. I just have gone to school a lot longer and studied a lot more and I read a lot more than most people, but I am just like everybody else in the community. You, do you see that helping? Does that help when you make a connect, try I, to make connections? I, I think it does. I think it does because, you know, there was this premise that I, I grew up um, with a silver spoon in my mouth. In the first ward. Yeah. yeah. In the <laughs> first a lot, ward, of, lot right. of silver spoons there. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, next to the Perry Projects and, and um, uh, an, an area that's, you know, just really tough. Right. You know, very tough. Um, yeah, so... You know, um, I, I just uh, want to be part of the solution when it comes to that because I want them to know that uh, that I'm, I'm I am just like them in a lot of instances, and uh, um, so yeah, um, 
so yeah, so all of these adverse things that people see at a very very young age, they we shouldn't be seeing. And you know, if we go back, see, the Haudenosaunee people have great teachings, right? And um, you know, and I would I would say that probably the foundation of our great one of our greatest teachings is the Great Law of Peace. And you know, in order to be really good and to really be you know, have health and well-being, um, you have to be at peace with yourself, right? You have to be at peace in order to withstand ridicule. You have to be at peace in order to have um, good health. You know, you have to be assured of yourself, confident in yourself that, you know, that, you know, we all have a little bit of peace in us. And if we're able to really... um, bring out that peace out of people, bring out that spirituality, bring out that goodness. And there's, you know, something in our communities we call having a good mind, right? Because we want to have a good mind. Because when you have a good mind, you do good things, you know, and that kind of precipitates this peace and having a good mind. And, and, and these things are all foundational teachings uh, of who we are as Haudenosaunee people. Now we've gotten away from this right. because of uh, the corruptness of uh, the United States and what they did to Native people in order to get what they wanted, and that was the land. But you know, if you go back to the foundations of a, of some of our teachings, you know, the Quakers used to write down how uh, they didn't understand how we valued our children the way we did. Really? Yeah, they, you know, how we treated them so nice, you know, that it was, uh, in many cases, uh, our elders who were doing the day-to-day raising the children, and it was the parents that were actually doing the work, right? Women doing the farming, men doing the hunting hunting and uh, fishing and protecting the, uh, the communities, you know? Um, but we've really put a lot, a big value on our children and, and a lot of these early teachings. And, uh, you know, and we also had a, a huge value for, uh, the woman and the child, you know, and, uh, we, we really got away from that. You know, that reminds me, you know, one thing Ben Franklin said, well, he said a lot of things, hmm. but when he was, uh, creating this experiment called the United States, he said, you know, it has to be a remnants of the first inhabitants, right? And he looked at the Haudenosaunee, and he said, you know, wow, it's amazing how these people govern themselves, right? He was, you know, he's like, he looked at the, the three systems of government, you know, the chiefs, clan mothers, and warriors, you know. Sounds very familiar to executive, <laughs> legislative, and judicial, yes. right? And, you know, we can go into those comparisons, and there's a lot of writings on this, and, you know, we could, you know, dissect this to the nth degree, but what Ben Franklin really forgot was the role of the women and children in this whole, uh, in this whole thing called uh, the United States democracy. You know, uh, that was left out, you know, on purpose. But I really do feel our Native communities now more than ever are really trying to get back to that root of of uh, the, the 
really predominant roles of women and children in our communities. Dean Seneca with us. Uh, his company is called Seneca Scientific Solutions Plus. He has been our guest today on What's Next, and this is What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.